Good morning, everyone. This is David Paddock over the airwaves. I've got North Carolina on the phone. North Carolina, what's your status? Uh, we're raising up over here, apparently. Yeah, apparently Durham's having some uh, some trouble, some of their architecture right now. I don't know about trouble. I think it's uh, a cleaning or a refreshment, you might say. That's um, Why aren't you over there? We're refreshing the facades. I'm not there because I still have uh, pending charges from uh, a, a similar arrest uh, from the state house this past January as the uh, NC state legislature tried to push through some very unpopular reforms. I was part of a group that sat in after they kicked the uh, spectators out of the gallery and got arrested for the cause. And uh, the courts in North Carolina are unsure of what to do about this situation because so many people have been arrested uh, protesting this and other forms of legislative malfeasance that they just, they're, they're at a loss. So every time I think that I'm going to go to court and plead guilty, which is what I intend to do, I get an email from my lawyer stating that we've been continued. I think we've gone through this uh, six, five or six times so far. It's, it's been pretty crazy. Um, but Help. yeah, I figured I, I don't want to put my I don't want to put my good name on the line until that's <laughs> resolved, right? Like let's do it once and see what happens and then go do it again. <sighs> How long does it take for it not to qualify as an expedient trial? Ooh. You know, that's a good question. I haven't I'm actually gonna uh, write that down and ask my lawyer. <laughs> Cause that really that would have been the first thing that I should ask, right? Like after the third continuance. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I don't know. I'm not I'm no legal counsel, but uh, in any case, uh, Vinny, we are here to discuss a book and a situation and maybe a couple of other situations since a lot of things tie into this book uh, by the name of Twitter and Tear Gas by, I'm just going to look the name up explicitly. It is, uh, unless you've got it on the tip of your tongue. Well, uh, so I can give you the correct pronunciation of it. You know, she is a North North Carolinian as well. So uh, it's uh, Zainab Tufechi. All right. Uh, you have the floor. What the hell is this book about? This book is about networked protest, uh, defined as protest movements over the past, let's say, decade that have been brought about by the force of the internet. It studies how they've differed from protests in the past, how power has responded to those protests, and how that response has evolved over time. So really, it's a, it's a fantastic book for people who are involved in any sort of... Uh, political gatherings or protest scenes that want to learn how to do it more effectively, to learn what modern movements uh, do well, what they don't do well, and to get them thinking about what they could do better um, and how to use the tools that are available to them to better signal their capacity to power. There isn't a whole lot of pedigree outside of the internet for analysis of this, at least not that I saw. Um, there's a whole lot of, hey, that Facebook, that Twitter, that et cetera, is really shaking things up kind of stuff that floats around in the middle of books about sociology. Uh, but this is the first concentrated treatise that I've seen anywhere. And that kind of makes sense since it's talking about a phenomenon that is outside of books. I mean, it's it's something that is taking place in a different medium entirely. Um, how did you think this book does at achieving its goal? I think overall it does a pretty good job. And uh, part of the uh, issue that, that we've talked about is that this is such a burgeoning social movement. It's, it's really only been around to be studied for the past maybe five or six years, a decade at most, that uh, we just don't have a good idea of 
what's going to come of it. So all we can do is look at what's happened so far and try to extrapolate from there uh, whether it's been effective or not. And Zainab does a really good job of that. I'm glad it was her that wrote this book because I feel like most of the time with subjects like this, you get uh, outsiders who will research it and maybe peer into it a little bit and then report their findings, uh, whereas Ms. Tufechi has been on the ground with these movements since the days of the uh, uh, the WTO protests in Seattle in the 90s. So she's someone who's been really embedded with these social movements and can study them from an insider's perspective, and obviously that can lead to some bias. But I think she does a good job of avoiding it in this case. Yeah, she's almost overly political in her attempt to hedge against <laughs> the closeness that she has to some of these protests. She was born in uh, Turkey and has spent quite a bit of time there, which for those of you who read even the mainstream fake news, uh, it shows up. It shows up on occasion as a place where turmoil is going on. Um, it, and it is a thing. They, there's a man there named er- er- Erdogan. Erdogan. Yeah, yeah, Erdogan. He's a real, ba- a real um, bad man, but also he helps the U.S., so he's not that bad, right? How bad could he be? <laughs> no, the... Um, no, so she's she's pretty close to it. She has she has the fallibility uh, that anyone who is so blatantly going to care about the subject she covers would have. But it, I feel like she almost hedges against it too much. Uh, we've talked about the first chapter and sort of the second chapter of this uh, book. I guess it would be the intro in the first chapter. Um, she lays this thing out like it is a treatise of some kind, like she's presenting it to a governing body. And I find that completely unhelpful because if you are going to dismiss what she says in this book, uh, her hedging that she did all the research and that she checked everything twice does not help anyone understand what's going on here. They're either going to they're, they're, they're the kind of people who would read a book like this, which means that they're either interested in sociological phenomena or they're using it as a how-to guide. And neither of them, I don't, I, I don't feel like her, uh, her template works in that point. Thankfully, the so, book stops doing that. I was going to say, yeah, so are you thinking that she should have perhaps presented it initially from a more moralistic viewpoint or taken her side more completely? I, I, almost, I don't know if I got the same thing I almost or read do. the same thing out of it. I, hmm. I almost feel like she should have put slightly more heart into it. She has like – there are, there are moments where she talks about the closeness that she has to it. I mean she, she has a sort of journalistic perspective a lot of the time where it feels like there's one step removed between the story and – uh, that she receives and the story that she feels. Um, but it, it almost seems like, and this feels a little contradictory in my own head, given my preferences for fiction, um, I almost would rather that her story had been more intimate than it was. Because That's her- actually, so in the first chapter, I, I did take that away from it. And uh, I talked with you about this at one point. Uh, when she talks about the history of connectivity, uh, I thought it could have basically been boiled down to the idea that uh, uh, propinquity, the likelihood of people to interact with one another, follows an exponential growth curve uh, that pairs, runs parallel to the growth of technology. Um, but the story of her grandmother and the changes that were observed through her eyes over time were gripping. Uh, it was personal. It drew me into her perspective. And I wished that there was a little bit more context on that. We kind of moved away from that really quickly. And I understand it wasn't the focus of the book, but I felt like I could have listened or 
read her writing about that all day. Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I would have quite the stomach for it that you would, but it is the kind of thing that makes her not only interested in the topic, but qualified to talk about it. I mean, anyone can talk about Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. Anyone, know, anyone can go on that website, any of those websites for eight hours, and a lot of people do, um, and, and sort of give an armchair analysis of what's going on on those websites as it pertains to activism, because we all see that activism happening. Facebook does as good a job as it can of stifling all of that, but it doesn't work. I mean, it still shows up. So her perspective is intriguing in a way that it feels like she tried to stifle. And thankfully it doesn't kill the book. The book is definitely worth the read. Um, But it's certainly in the first chapter and near the end, it, sort of falls back into that a little bit. Um, she, it seems like she's talking to an alien audience that is just not the target audience of this book. Well, so one of the interesting things about the uh, atmosphere that she cultivated around the book, and I think there's maybe an explanation for this, is her idea was not to just be speaking to her audience. And so uh, what she's done, it appears, is to encourage people to buy the book and then take the profits and roll them into uh, Creative Commons licenses to get the book out to a wider audience. So she's used that Creative Commons license and those profits to give the book to uh, school children, foreign school children in third world nations and things like that, uh, to, I guess just to try to, to reach more people. And so given that, it may make sense that she's writing from that viewpoint where she doesn't want to necessarily alienate anyone by taking are really st- I, I think the moral stance in the book is pretty strong but that that just makes it so that's well it's it's strong by its nature if you're talking about protest in the 21st century with very few exceptions there's there's a very there's a precise demographic and political leaning to it at least over the last 5 years on Facebook and Twitter most of her examples lean in a certain direction um, oh, but, absolutely. But, that, but that's still, it still doesn't feel like an excuse of the first chapter. I don't want to keep harping on it because there's a bunch of other chapters in the book. But there it was, it, it just, <laughs> not nine of them, in fact. It, it just struck me. It struck me as a weird, it struck me as a weird place to begin. Um, okay. But it definitely, but the, it, it, it didn't start strong. It picked up steam. Yes. Yes, it did. Um, uh, speaking of which, the, uh, where does it go from there? So, <laughs> well, the second chapter was actually that, that was kind of the low point for me because she made a number of assertions that I didn't they didn't necessarily jibe with my understanding of the world. So she made a few claims uh, like uh, in the past, mass media had a monopoly on public attention and in the past uh, movements that used a strategy of accessing mass media in order to draw attention to their movement ran the risk of provoking negative coverage. And the subtext to all of this was that that had changed. And I just don't believe that it has necessarily. So for example, in America, you've got black lives matter and you've got these powerful protest movements, relatively powerful uh, that have been able to signal to some degree uh, their abilities to organize. However, they still exist on the fringes of American media coverage in that either they're not portrayed at all or they're portrayed in a negative light. And so someone like Chris Arnotti, who's been doing really good research on what we would call, I guess, the real America, 
<laughs> or what a politician would call the real America. Describe no, describe that, his angle, his profession. His, what does he do? His angle. He's a he's a former uh, investment banker who decided that what he did was very destructive. Uh, so about seven years ago, he got rid of all of his stuff and money, and has been just traveling across the United States interviewing people, uh, trying to. I guess, to borrow a term from Miyazaki, to see with eyes unclouded by hate. And so what he's found is that we're not as racist as everyone thinks. America is generally full of pretty good people. I mean, I like his stuff because it conforms to my idea of the world, right? There's some confirmation bias going on there, certainly. But I do think that he covers things pretty objectively. And uh, one of the things he notes is that if you're arguing politics online at all, you are part of a very small group of people. Most people don't have access or they have access, but they don't care. They don't engage in that world. Most people still only view politics through the lens of CNN, through Fox or whatever. So when Zainab says something like mass media has a monopoly or had a monopoly on public attention, implying that it does not anymore, that's true to some extent, but she never really gets into the limit of that and how much of a monopoly it still does have in terms of affecting the ability of these protest movements to affect change. It's usually when she talks about the failure of these movements, she talks about the inability of the movements to sustain whatever energy they had in coming together to protest into electoral victories, into legislative victories, into social victories, etc. I think that she kind of touched on other elements of that, such as this mass media monopoly, but then didn't dive into them any further than that. Um, same thing goes for the the strategy of accessing mass media and how it could run the risk of provoking negative coverage in the past. Like that absolutely still happens. I think that's pretty undoubtable. You can see the protests at the G20 and the way those protesters were covered a couple months ago to give a, a really great example of how the coverage is still overwhelmingly negative for the news outlets that reach the most people. Well, cons- uh, I mean, we can pull this into immediate current events. Um, this is being recorded a handful of days after the, uh, the Charlottesville rally and counter rally and all the responses heretofore, it would seem a little uncouth to have spoken as the president, but we're in that, uh, we're in that mode right now. Um, I won't say that the news has been completely, the, the, the specifically the mainstream media has been entirely uncharitable to everyone, uh, but they've been damn close. They do a pretty good job of showing the worst side of every protest and every rally that there is, yep. um, unless it's for puppies and children. Um, it's, it, it is a proud tradition of the news to show every ounce of bloodshed, fire, and broken glass at every event everywhere. It's sort it of is. their job. It is. I noticed with this Charlottesville protest, what seemed to happen was uh, a, a switch got flipped, right? Where the, the protest of the neo-Nazis was pretty negative, overwhelmingly, rightly so. Uh, the counter-protesters seemed to have a pretty negative image in the eyes of the news until Trump used the term alt-left, and then that softened quite a bit. And I've seen it softening since then. So thanks, Donald, I guess. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to talk about alt left for another week, at least, since the nope. hubbub on that is so fresh that well, we don't. We don't yeah. even necessarily know where it's going to fall. Um, no, we don't. Not yet. But <laughs> let's give it another. Let's give it another protest because you know there's going to be another one of these rallies at some point. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel the need to comment on alt left until we know whether or not the term's going to stick. So 
We'll see. Um, but to get back to internet protest, I guess the thing that I would want to say about the monopolization or demonopolization of mass media in terms of its influence on either public rhetoric or even public consciousness is that people have always filtered the news. I mean, you had mentioned that, you know, CNN and NBC were the places where people got their information from. CNN and Fox, but yeah. CNN, Fox, etc. The places, uh, one of the things that Arnotti points out is like, it's the places that have contracts to broadcast everywhere in McDonald's, in airports, in places that people gather in public. It becomes a thing uh, and they just absorb it. But it's, it's, it's there. It, yes, it, it's being absorbed, but it's also still, it's not getting there untapped. I mean, people are already filtering it. And I would submit that even though that may be like the initial source of the news, the Associated Press in some way is where it starts. By the time mm-hmm. it gets to most people's ears, it has become third-hand information. I mean, and all Twitter and Facebook basically did was formalize that filter. That's still where people are getting the information from. The only instances where that's not true are largely activist things. There are instances where the news doesn't get there first, where Mm -hmm. there's a tragedy or someone does something either catastrophic or heroic, etc. The news doesn't get there first. Something that would be called breaking news. If you could call it breaking news, it's probably going to be covered on Twitter before it feeds through any of those agencies, right? Exactly. And all you've done at that point is is change the point of formalization where it would normally be at um, it would normally be at a news desk. It's just it's coming from a dude who then it gets retweeted by your friend, and that's how you find out about it. But those those levels of filtration always existed, and that's sort of a that's that's sort of what I take away from this book more than anything. Going from this chapter forward is that the internet sped a lot of things up, and it, generally speaking, it has increased the number of things that we consider signals. But for the most part. Everything is still in play that was always ever in play. You still have to get crowds together. You still have to have motivations. You need organization. You need foundation. Like none of that has evaporated just because the internet showed up and it's fast. Isn't one of her points that you really don't need the foundation in the same way that you used to? I didn't get that. from it. She gave the impression that if you don't have the organizational skills that you would... It, you. You can build them up faster, but you still need them. I'm trying to remember the specific example. I mean, she she hammers on the civil rights movement mostly just because it's one that people are familiar with. Well, um, so yeah, and that's I thought that that was the best example she could have given in terms of illustrating how protest has changed. And uh, there there was a phenomenal quote because for the people who have not read this book yet, uh, what she talks about is she contrasts the civil rights movement with the uh, Tahrir Square occupation in Egypt that led to the downfall of Hosni Mubarak. And she looked at why the civil rights movement was able to achieve more significant legislative goals, and uh, the Egyptian movement was not able to. And I mean, that's a really complex topic. But one of the things she settled on was that because the tools of the internet were not available in the 60s, people were forced to do more foundation building in order to make something like the March on Washington happen, the logistics were more difficult. The logistics for the Montgomery bus, bus boycott were, were difficult. And there's a fantastic, uh, I really like this quote. I thought it was pretty much the money quote of the book. Um, so she's talking about how uh, 
when the Montgomery boys bus boycott happened, uh, the boycotters needed to set up uh, dispatch stations uh, to make sure that carpools could be operated. So they set up something like uh, four dozen dispatch stations, got hundreds of cars together to make sure that people could get to their jobs. And then they also needed to inform every African-American family in Montgomery that this bus boycott was happening. So they had people print up flyers and walk to every house and make sure that every family knew about it. And this all happened within a matter of days. Um, so she goes, with the advent of digital tools, it seems no loss to avoid having to stay up all night with a mimeograph machine or to meet many times a week to organize carpools. However, the work that went into traditional organizing models generated much more than riders and flyers. The presence of movement organizations before and during the boycott in the African-American community of Montgomery allowed the creation of both formal institutions and informal ties that were crucial for the boycotters to weather the severe repression and threats they received, as well as the legal and extra-legal pressures and economic challenges that they suffered. So when you talk about foundations, I think that's what she's getting at. Those foundations were created through the challenges that they faced in making this a reality. Whereas now, with the Tahrir Square example, she, she talks about Tahrir Supplies, where four people got together and organized the logistics of this that allowed hundreds of thousands of people to come out and participate in it. So the foundation wasn't necessary. It may have been there, but it's not necessarily as strong. It wasn't as big of a challenge. It didn't create the same ties, right? Yeah, but she gave the impression that that ends up ultimately being a weakness because it reduces the resilience of the people involved. The fact that you don't have to do any of those things, I mean, it was sort of incorporated in the quote the way that you mentioned it. There's In order to stand up to that repression, requires motivation. And one of the simplest ways to improve your degree of motivation is to improve your endurance. And the internet is not great for that. Um, it, right. And so that's, the, I'm agreeing with you. I thought you said that the internet was, was bringing to the front things that were already there, which implied that the foundation aspect of it, the foundational aspect of it hasn't changed. Um, yeah. I guess I'm not sure how I would I'm not sure how I would attempt to phrase that, but there's, it's, it's the thing that the book, again, to me that I get out of it is that it has changed. It has flattened out some aspects of this, but you still, you cannot simply tweet your way to victory. Um, no. the, the notion of what's the derogatory term. It's not hack- slacktivist. There you go. Slacktivist. You you have to actually get out and do something. You can, a couple of people can get away with organizing logistics on the internet. The vast majority of people need to actually be involved somewhere. They have to be talking to people. They have to be organizing at actual points so that this can be pointed to. The internet, aside from getting a trending hashtag, there's very little influence in just being on the web. And this is one of those weird things that's always, uh, she actually talks about this specifically, uh, the dualism of the internet, about the idea that there is this divide between meat space and cyberspace, and that cyberspace can exist on its own. Um, And that's just not true. Cyberspace is facilitating meat space. And if you don't treat it that way, it will almost always backfire on you. Uh, 4chan has run into this a dozen times as a very deliberately picked avant-garde counterexample of the kinds of protesting that she's talking about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, every time 4chan runs into reality, things go haywire. Um, and it's because they are a bunch of flippant douchebags online. Like that's, and that's the world they live in. They don't live in the real world that way, and they attempt to translate it outside. And it turns out that if you don't account for that, it, does, it doesn't just like come forth because you have it nailed in this one domain. It has to reflect back in the real world. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it and a good example to use for it. Um, this this chapter uh, on uh, on the difference between modern movements and the civil rights movement, uh, she goes into uh, details about the gentleman who organized the logistics for the March on Washington, uh, who was a guy named uh, Bayard Rustin. And I had never heard of this guy before. I admit my civil rights history could probably be stronger because he seemed like a pretty uh, central figure in a lot of ways. But this guy was uh, gay. He was a communist, a uh, pacifist. And I just thought, damn, that's my kind of guy. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty serious, in the 60s. In the 60s, yeah. yeah. Uh, so she talked about how this, this guy had uh, serious, serious frictions within the movement uh, because of what he was in a number of ways. And he still managed to pull this off. And so what I wondered, and she kind of touches on this a little bit, uh, the, the internet has the ability to preserve everything. Social media has the ability to preserve everything that we say, every battle that we fight so that we can go back and relitigate it over and over and over again. The fact that this man could do what he did for this movement, despite being in many ways antithetical to what they stood for, uh, uh how, how do we do that now? That's a, that's a challenge that we run into now that I don't, I haven't heard a good answer for yet. Um, how do we stop? How do we let things go to let people work in the same capacity that he worked, despite the fact that they may not be ideologically pure? They may have been problematic in the past on social media. How do we keep from re- relitigating the same fights over and over again? That she doesn't address. And no. uh, frankly, we do need another book <laughs> full of solutions for this. Uh, mm. The European, uh, the closest thing that I is coming to mind on that question is the European Union's attempt to essentially legislate being forgotten by Google. Uh, but there's no way that will actually work. It has to be some sort of cultural phenomenon. Uh, what form that will take, I don't know. And right. um, yeah, I, I have no idea. Yeah, that's kind of what I came up with too. I thought about that a lot after I read this book. I was like, wow, this guy, I don't know if this guy could have existed in a modern leftist movement, not because he's a gay commie pacifist, uh, but a similar person who was similarly out of lockstep with the values of a lot of the members of a movement. I just don't know how that would work these days, but it doesn't seem like it would be good. Um, No, particularly not in, and I I don't want to hit on this point too hard because I think it is, I think it is in fact exaggerated, but the degree to which uh, particularly in leftist movements, uh, that there is a lot of philosophical infighting and there is a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, witch burning going on. And, uh, it's, it's a phenomenon that she also doesn't actually go into in this book, but I think is, it's an adjacent enough topic that that's okay. Um, just the degree to which these organizations are almost absurdly critical of each other or of themselves. That actually, occasion. that, I think that leads perfectly into the following chapter because the following chapter talks about uh, the leaderlessness of these movements and that challenge is one that's exacerbated. The challenge you just described is exacerbated by the fact that these movements are leaderless. Um, 
one of the things she points out over and over again is the fact that a lot of these protests tend to be anti-election, anti-leader, anti-trust. She talks about Occupy Wall Street and some of the examples there where generally good ideas, ideas that probably would have served the movement, were blocked by single people. Um, for example, the one of the best ones that she gives, I think, is from Occupy Atlanta, where when they had a chance to coordinate with a powerful black politician in John Lewis, uh, one white college kid didn't want philosophy him to speak. Philosophy doctorate. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. A philosophy doctorate didn't want him to speak because he felt, when pressed, uh, he felt that it would elevate the voice of one over the voice of all. And that stopped John Lewis from speaking and denied the movement a chance to coordinate with a politician. So... Now, I've talked in the past about the degree to which I am an instinctively conservative human being. Um, I would have... <laughs> and then I go to jail for 15 years. But it'd be worth it. This is why yeah. I don't go to protests. They make me nervous. Is that it? Because you think you might flip out and kill somebody? Yeah, probably. I mean, maybe that's, not necessarily that extreme, but... That's a good reason I, to be nervous, I suppose. But I am introverted, and in crowds full of motivated people, I get stressed out pretty rapidly. So, I... Um, I so, I don't... They're not I don't for know me. You, oh, sorry, go ahead. I don't, know if, I don't know if you gave this any thoughts, so I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a question that you may or may not have an answer to, because uh, these are very difficult questions. But when these movements are so vehemently... Uh, anti-leader and anti, I'm not going to say consensus, but it's basically what it is. What does that represent a failure of? Is that a failure of vision? Is it a failure of education, of the media, of experience? Uh, and is that a notch in the favor of the idea that the only way that true revolution can occur through these movements is through collapse? That is a multi-layered thick question. Um, I, it, it strikes me as odd that leaderless movements are as effective as they are to some extent. It's, it's something that we've talked about in the past, not specifically relating to this book, but I, I would contend that in first world protest scenarios, most of the legwork is done by, is done by awareness. Most Americans have, and by most, I don't mean 95%, I mean 70%. I mean enough that the other 30% would shut up if everybody just got together and agreed on this. Black Lives Matter is an important movement, not because it was standing up for the rights of black people not to be coerced by the police. It was important because it showed everybody that that was a problem at all. And the moral calculus does not even factor into it. Everyone just assumed that things were better than they were. And right. that's the important part. It's different when we're talking about a regime, which is, again, it's very important. The caveat, first world versus third world here. And as an American, the third world is everything east of Florida and south of Florida, for that matter. Um, in the first world, we do have a generally liberal understanding of morality and all you have to do to get people to care or change their minds or for that matter, the direction of their feet is to get them to recognize that these things are actually happening. And that's really hard and it becomes harder every day. Um, thanks in large part to the forces that, uh, to fact she's talking about in this book, mm -hmm. but 
the fight is for eyeballs. The fight is for attention. I know that that drags into a chapter that's later on. Um, but it's it's certainly the it, it's certainly it's China's primary tactic. Apparently, um, that it is that, that was and, an interesting thing she talks about. I don't. It's it's in the chat. It's in my favorite chapter, the one about how power is responding to all this. It, it's in the ninth chapter. Yeah, it's the last chapter of the book, really, because it's talking about how uh, governments have started to understand the power that these movements can generate and have learned how to undermine it, that power. Um, but it's it's you bring up Black Lives Matter. Um, I thought there was some interesting perspective on on Twitter the other day from uh, Bree Newsom, who was the the woman who uh, climbed the flagpole and took down the Confederate flag in, in South Carolina. But she wanted to share some thoughts on on why uh, Black Lives Matter had failed to increase its profile in the wake of Ferguson, because you know we've had a lot of of young black men and women killed by police since Ferguson, but there's been no sustained movement that has captured the nation's attention in the same way. And you see the same tactics at work that are going to be described by uh, Zainab in China, where uh, the structures of power in the U.S. have been able to undermine that movement very effectively, in part because of the leaders, leaderlessness of it, uh, and the movement hasn't had a way to respond. So some of the things that she detailed uh, were to... Uh, generate infighting by holding summits and only inviting certain members of the movement uh, to make other people paranoid that they didn't, you know, didn't warrant an invitation. Uh, some of it was local governments dangling very small amounts of money to contribute to the cause, uh, making sure that there was a scarce enough amount of it that there was going to be fighting over who got it and how it was allocated. Things like that, uh, really kind of insidious tactics but very effective ones when you don't have leaders that you can point to. Uh, so I think it really serves to, to illustrate uh, Zainab's point about the weakness of these, these leaderless movements and the need to move beyond that at some point to find some, some way to elevate people and to have their voices be trusted. Because that was the second point when she talked about the informal and formal uh, foundations built by the civil rights movement. She hammers on the idea that it was through the years of doing IRL doing uh, that leaders tended to emerge. Yep. And so we have to, we have to have that now, right? It serves to, to speak to your point about not being able to exist solely online. Like you have to be able to do the work to show up. Um, but it seems like these movements, well, and, even, and to get credit up. for it. I mean, and to this, get credit for it, yeah. <laughs> this is the leader, the leaderless thing. I, I understand the anarchist sentiment. I mean, it's extreme. It is the absolute apotheosis of anarchy and protest to have just everyone come up from the ground and have the will of the people be done. Um, but you need someone occasionally, the term she uses to describe when this fails is tactical freeze, which is a very good, uh, it's a very good term. I don't know if she coined it or not. Yeah, I'm not sure, but it was, yeah, that one stuck with me as well. Yeah, it's the idea that when you have a crowd of people and no one is in charge, no one is allowed to change the rules of engagement, which means that the same tactics get played over and over and over again. You're not allowed to switch strategies, and if you do, you sort of threaten to fracture the movement. Um, and this sort of happened in Black Lives Matter. Um, it's kind of the problem with it being a hashtag. If you don't anthropomorphize the hashtag so that it has some sort of coherency, 
you get different splinter groups off of it. I mean, this is where, and it was funny because I was sort of on, I was sort of on this side for a while in the argument until I recognized this when I was, I was talking with Alicia about this for a while. Um, I completely understand why people use the all lives matter hashtag. And it is a misinterpretation of the fact that there are no leaders to this protest anymore. You, when, when you're talking about black lives matter, as opposed to all lives matter, the all lives matter people are missing the point about the poignancy of the hashtag. Um, and it's not something that can be fixed unless they are talked to one-on-one because no one is willing to be the representative on mass of the movement. Oh, I think people are definitely willing to be that representative. I think people like DeRay McKisson have tried to be that, but the movement I don't know itself, who that is, which is an indication of how effective it was. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, the movement itself rejects those voices in a lot of cases, and in his case, it was probably a good thing because he's on Twitter now shilling for Doritos and Verizon and swearing that that's just part of being woke. But uh, <laughs> That's just sustainability, man. Come that's on. That's just, yeah, dude, he's just, he's just getting that bread. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, when those voices threatened to emerge, I mean, it just didn't go anywhere. And that's someone like Brie, you would think with an act, a singular act that brought her to national prominence, that would be the kind of thing that could thrust her into a leadership role. But that hasn't really happened. Um, A lot of followers on Twitter, but no one would point to her as the head of the, the movement. And so, like Zainab says, if you're a government official or someone in a position of power, you can undermine that real easily, but even if you have good intentions, you don't know who to talk to. No, that's you know? that's what I was about to say. I mean, you don't even need if a small if a small county somewhere wants to contribute money to Black Lives Matter, um, they could have the best intentions in the world, and it still has all of these spiraling problems. You still have to give the money to something. Like it's <laughs> there's there's still there there's a reason. It, I the complaint is not quite in the same ballpark, but it was, it, it was like, I forget which president asked the question. It's like, when I want to talk to Europe, who do I call? I mean, there's, there's a point in having central figure figureheads and there's no, I, the closest thing to a solution that's coming to mind for how you solve this in a movement is to have someone who is literally a representative, someone yep. who is in fact, simply well-spoken and is acting in accordance with, with what the general will appears to be. Um, but there are even problems with that. It's the reason why you can't get a famous civil rights lawyer, uh, civil rights activist on a stage because even the general will is not sufficient for people to back you unequivocally. Right. And so, uh, again, back in North Carolina, (laughs) my home, we have a movement that is working to solve this problem. Uh, the Moral Monday movement has been going for a number of years now. Uh, it's a homegrown kind of organic movement that didn't start with a large protest, but uh, it has a figurehead in Reverend Barber, who has always been uh, a very inclusive figure, a very pure figure for that movement to use as its figurehead. And uh, rather than starting with a single flashpoint, that leads a bunch of people to a protest. It started as a uh, group of, I, I don't know, 30 or 40 people who would every Monday go protest at the legislature's steps. 
as the Republicans gerrymandered the state to get their supermajority and started forcing through all of this really uh, regressive leg- legislation. And over the years, we've seen that grow into something that now holds a, a moral march that draws thousands and thousands of people on a yearly basis. So maybe the switch is being flipped in some regards, and you're seeing regional movements sprout up that are going to be able to one day coordinate with one another and create a larger national movement. That's kind of my hope. I don't know if that has any direct application to something that starts as a national movement like Black Lives Matter, but it does show that there are people out there who are creating movements right now that, uh, that are doing good things and actually have a leadership structure in place that people seem to be okay with, right? It's like, it's a proof of concept. It shows that people will accept that leadership. Yeah. We just got to figure out how to scale it up. But well, will they accept it in all instances? Is there something special about that organization that doesn't map to the ones that uh, Tefekchi was talking about? Um, perhaps the charismatic nature of, of Reverend Barber. He's just a very, like I said, I used pure for a reason. He just comes across as an exceptionally ethical person. You can hear it in his speech in his, I wouldn't say he's larger than life necessarily, but he's got a very, he's just got a very powerful stature. Um, that sounds very meat spacey. Yeah, it's very meat spacey. You're right. I don't think he tweets. I don't think he tweets. And yeah, the funny thing is, so, uh, you know, he's heavily involved with the North Carolina NAACP, which I think has mm, maybe a few hundred Twitter followers, a few thousand. It's not many. Let's see. They have 19,000 followers, but their tweets don't go viral very often. You know, they have uh, three retweets, 11 retweets, eight retweets. So it's not a it's not a wide reaching feed. It's not a viral feed in the way that a lot of movement feeds are. So what that would indicate to me is that they're not focused on virality. Right. Yeah, they probably could be if they wanted to. But that isn't where the focus lies. Or they don't have someone in hand who's capable of that since it is 100% a skill that you can cultivate. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but they're winning victories. You know, they've, they've held the line against some of the really awful legislation. They haven't been able to stop everything, but the fact that they've been able to stop anything when there's a Republican supermajority and up until last year, a Republican governor is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, and but, now, but that this- does imply that meat space played a large role in, <laughs> in most of what they do. I mean, what you were saying, a charismatic leader does not come across in a tweet most of the time, um, nope. unless they've vi- got very, very catchy sentences. No, that, that sounds like it's not a refutation of anything Tefekchi's saying. It sounds like it's just, it obviates technology. It did. And I, I don't know how applicable it is outside the United States or third world, as, as you talked about, because it seems difficult to expect a resistance leader to exist under a regime without severe repression. So when something like the Tahrir Square protests come about or the Gessie Park protests come about, there's probably a protection, as she points out, in the leaderlessness of the movement, right? Oh, that absolutely. Is the, that, is the, that is the advantage. So this is very much a U.S.-centric example that I don't really think has a ton of applicability to, to maybe what she was going into in the book. No, 100%. I mean, that's we'll, we'll get to that soon enough. Uh, the, the difference between Facebook and Twitter is absolutely critical outside of uh, the borders of the United States. I mean, the ability to organize using aliases 
is huge because in a in in a country where you are attempting to fight a dictatorial power or something close to it, um, they have means of dealing with individuals. I mean, they, that is that is a fact of life that they have to contend with. Um, this is our other topic uh, for this podcast. Potentially, it sounds like we may just break that off into a separate episode at this point. Uh, Venezuela is a yeah. great example of this, where yeah, well, you, you can't even you can't even be a high profile protester of the government without serious ramifications in some countries. Yeah, v- Venezuela is a little bit more difficult of a case as we could get into. Maybe not here. Um, yeah, but no, yeah, but that, but, by, it is, but it is but it is an example. Like, okay, so. Oh, that's actually a question that I had for you in my my notes. Where uh, where do you come down on that? Do you think that aliases are more or less uh, optimal for social media than, than the necessity of using real names? And I guess for me, even in a third world scenario, as governments have caught up to the monitoring and the exploitation of these mediums, like one of her central points is that all of these third world countries all these regimes got caught with their pants down during the Arab Spring, 2012, 2013. But by the time 2016 rolled around, they were pretty savvy. Um, and Turkey actually used them very effectively to defeat a coup movement. So given the fact that they probably are able to track even anonymous accounts pretty well at this point, um, I, I kind of come down on the side of, of using uh, real names, tying real identities to accounts to prevent uh, mob violence uh, to prevent excessive trolling, to prevent attacks of that nature. Um, I mean, as long as as long as the move the movement is sufficiently anarchistic, that's totally fine. Because if there's no one, to, if there's no point in singling out one person for optimal effect, then why not just use the real names if they're going to show up at a protest anyway? Just if the government if the government isn't given targets of opportunity that are of any real consequence, then yes, by all means, throw some skin in the game, give everybody a real name, and it'll cut down on the amount of noise that's going on, if nothing else. Right. Um, it's just, that's not preferable if you need people to be linchpins in the operation. And, I mean, we're going to find out whether or not this form of protest keeps working as the state, I mean, the states are getting way, way better about this and the countermeasures are being developed quite slowly. Um, China's grasp on their tech situation is almost total. I mean, yeah. they're doing a great job. They do. They do a great job. Like let's take a break and admire China for a second. And she gets into this and, and talks about how they uh, crushed the Hong Kong student protests, uh, and also how they monitor their, their internet. Um, and rather than this was interesting because I knew half of this, but I didn't know the other half of it. So she referenced a sociological, uh, sociological study from China that looked at how they enforce their internet censorship. And the part that I knew was that they didn't censor criticism of the government because that actually helped them respond to feedback, which is often a blind spot of, uh, regimes, but they did censor anything that could encourage collective action in person. And the part that I didn't know was that they did this not only for anti-government uh, sentiment, but for pro-government sentiments. So if you were thinking about organizing in favor of the government, they would still censor it under the idea that 
if these people are able to organize for this, what might they organize for in the future? Um, that was that was really interesting to me. But they are just phenomenally on top of that situation. I mean, I, I could see reading that not even necessarily as seeing um, seeing them turn to some other more insidious tur- tur- yeah turning towards some more insidious uh, motive it's it's just that the government has no reason not to just assume i they may as well just quash all of it if they want right. to throw a parade the government's perfectly capable of throwing a parade of their own volition the part right, that so- I, the part that i wasn't aware of in china uh, a lot of people are familiar with the great wall the great firewall of china most of what china does now has adapted to the way that the internet is proliferated, it's not just about blocking websites. In fact, it sounds like quite a bit of it is about having actual social sentiment misinform the public about the importance of topics. They have armies of people who deliberately obscure information. It's not that they're actually blocking it because there are ways to get around that. All you need is one leak and suddenly that's a problem. So what they do instead is they flood people's feeds, news, social media, or otherwise with stuff to misdirect. And that's been tremendously effective. Yeah, yeah, it has. And I mean, other governments are following that example. Um, but no, I, I didn't know that either. I thought that it was very much along the lines of what you consider uh, American troll armies to be, where they're people who are paid to debate certain topics online. But it's not that. It is a deliberate misdirection campaign, as you said, where they're talking about stuff that is completely unrelated to something that might be controversial. It's just another thing to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, harmless it just... as it may be. And and so the the Chinese government has taken that realization from from the internet into, as you say, meat space in dealing with these Hong Kong student protesters, they probably had the most effective response to one of these flash protests so far and that they just pretty much ignored it. Uh, they just ignored it and let the energy peter out on its own. They made sure that things didn't get too violent, but they kept the police mostly out. They took advantage of the fact that the protesters didn't want to be violent. They didn't want to be too loud. They kept the area that they were protesting in clean excessively. So by some accounts, um, and, you know, within a couple months, the public just lost interest and they were able to clear it out without anybody raising a fuss because people can't pay any attention to it and the news won't cover it unless there's some blood and some conflict and whatnot. So China, China's on top of it. Um, and that was really the final, that was the final example she gave, I believe, of these, uh, these protests. Am I, let's see. Yeah. Well, and I mean, China is certainly the most powerful example on that list most of most other states do not have that grasp on either the public or the internet although i will say uh i've never been a big fan of the people who and this is a social media complaint but i've never been a big fan of the people who poo-poo the idea of pointing out distractions online uh you know the people who are out there like oh i can walk and chew gum at the same time a lot of people can't and a lot of people are easily distracted. And the example that I'll give of this is I got dogpiled uh, a month or two ago for suggesting that the transgender ban uh, tweets that Trump made weren't going to go anywhere and didn't matter in the face of the healthcare debate. And so, you know, obviously the reaction was, well, I'm calling trans rights a distraction and as a, I deserve to catch hell for it. Uh, well, it comes out this last week that he tweeted that the morning that he found out that the FBI had raided Paul Manafort, it seemed like 
very much a distraction in hindsight, right? Um, stuff like that, plus what the Chinese government does uh, to, to make sure that people are misdirected in terms of the information that they're seeking out. I, I, I see some value in trying to keep people focused on bigger issues. I mean, this, this seems like a really easy filter at this point. Um, I don't know that I've specifically voiced this opinion, but I feel like it's been strongly implied and I, it just seems like it should be a more frequently held position. Um, whether or not Trump has dementia, he almost never does what he says he's going to do. And even the things he actually acts on carry almost no weight. So unless he's being funny, I don't know why anyone listens to him. You can just ignore him. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he is the easiest misinformationist in the world to overcome. He doesn't, he has a Twitter account that he uses as often as he uses his press secretaries. I mean, what do you actually know? That's a radical understatement, but there is no reason to take what he says seriously. Someone else has to act on it because it's quite clear he doesn't have the power or means to actually do what he says, if he even wants to. So yeah, just ignore it. You know, that's it's a really easy thing to say, but he's still the president, yeah, right? He like, is that the would president. Be, it would be really nice, but he can still unilaterally launch nukes, right? Uh, there's, no, there's no check in place to stop him from doing that. What's he going to write before he does that? Who, who knows? Can't exactly. even guess Exactly. It doesn't matter. We don't know what is going to trigger that, which sucks. Look, I, I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying it's easy to defend against. It, it's true. It is. Like, I agree with you intellectually, but my heart is like, no one's ever going to ignore the president. That's just not going to happen, especially not when there's such a cottage industry of responding to his tweets with indignant, sir, sir, tweets. That's just not going to happen. Again, there are plenty, there's plenty of comedy to be had here, but that is the line. When he talks about the local milk people, I listen with the exception of that. It's just, it's I just did love fl- those transcripts, man. Oh, those were phenomenal. It's just flash. That is all it is. It is. Douglas it is. Adams would be proud. What about Scott Adams? Um, also Scott Adams for that matter. Scott Adams would also be proud. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like, uh, I feel like we've kind of gotten off book topics here, but, uh, it's been okay. (laughs) What are you talking? (laughs) Trump, Trump is absolutely part of this conversation. I'm surprised. I actually know. I'm not surprised that to affect, she doesn't talk about him because he's an unfolding disaster and it would age her book, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, everything in their ages, it right. She's referring to specific protest movements, but, um, what did you think about? So there was a, a point in there where, uh, she raised an interesting question with regards to Twitter and the, the persistence of mob attacks that raised a question in my mind. Uh, if favorites and retweets weren't revealed as metrics, do you think that would change anything? Like if you, uh, you saw a retweeted tweet in your timeline, but there was no indication of how many retweets that tweet had. Do you think that that would discourage dogpiling? If that were like an internal metric that a user could see, but other users could not? I mean, I determine pretty frequently, much, much more often than I care to admit, except that I'm about to, um, that I favorite pictures on Tumblr based on how many notes they have. I know this sways my opinion, so I'm just going to say yes, because that's the way our brains are wired. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I thought that as well because if you don't have a, if you don't have an idea of the kind of reach that a tweet has, I was trying to figure out like what would the downside to that be. I, I this just falls into my one of my several treatises. Um, the thing that is going to the great filter for humanity is not our callousness toward each other in moments of stress. It is that we are addicted to single numbers. We love GDP. We love salaries. This is why money is so popular, aside mm-hmm. from the ability to buy shit. Uh, you can just look at the, you got the one number. And if this number's higher than this one, you know which to go for. We can't even do ranges. Like, we don't even like when someone says from 10 to 16. We just automatically think 13 or 14 in our heads because it's just too much. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you have a number to use in your brain means that you will use it. You will latch on to any number that's available to you. Um, and this is just another example of that. It lets you off the hook. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I didn't come up with any good downsides to that. It just seemed like a, it seemed like a useful idea that I haven't heard floated very often in terms of preventing, in terms of preventing mob attacks. But it also would kill part of the dopamine rush of seeing a tweet that has thousands of retweets on it. <laughs> so, no, no, that's that's my point. Is that that wouldn't kill that, right? Because that would still be revealed to the user. It's the people who didn't make the tweet that don't know. I'm sorry no, if I wasn't clear tw- on that. No, no, no. no I, I but I still think Twitter would rather. I think you would get a lot less responses if the numbers weren't there, because then you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the ninety nine to one effect that networks trade on yeah i guess not that probably wouldn't be great for their business model. oh no actually no i have a perfect counter example um there was a there was a story on twitter about how obama's tweet of a nelson mandela quote was the most tweeted tweet ever most retweeted mm-hmm. tweet ever so they were making news with a number oh that's good in conclusion they're not getting rid of it uh, no, I guess they're. I guess they're not. Uh, <laughs> it's sad, but true. <laughs> Although, you know, they're making news with the retweet. So I, I thought the, the other thing that I've seen floated a couple times. So I don't want to like claim this as an original idea, but I thought it was a really good one for Twitter uh, to to monetize the uh, the platform. Would be to add a third button uh, that would be like a donation button uh, that you could link to a bank account and don't you you donate for tweets you like, right? Individual tweets, not users, not like a Patreon model. But if you see something tweeted into your timeline and you like it, leave a donation for that person. Then Twitter takes their micro, you know, fraction of a cent off the top of it, uh, and there's your monetization of the system. We need uh, in a completely different episode to talk about the monetization of the internet. We can't. We, we can't go down that we can't road get into right that. now. Okay, let's not, let's not go down much, that road. There's too much. That's my, that's to my ideal. That. That's my ideal Twitter is no one sees how many tweets or favorites a tweet or likes your favorites a tweet has. And there's a way to, uh, pay people for individual tweets that you like. I believe you're just rephrasing a, a drill tweet right now. Uh, no, it's, uh, my sentence is far too coherent for that. Uh, and also, I can't misspell words when I'm speaking them. It's it's either Drill or Leon who has a tweet that goes, uh, from now on, please just give me the monetary value of whatever your <laughs> like is worth. <laughs> okay, I might be doing that. Uh, <laughs> Look, it's a bold vision of the future, and I'm not... I'm not like staunchly against it or anything, but it's it's far enough away from the topic at hand and complicated enough that it would need its own 
would, you're correct. It would yeah. need its own augury. But, you're correct. Uh, to get back for the second time, we've only had to do that twice. Considering we're talking about basically the internet, I would say this has been surprisingly on topic. Yeah, we've um, been pretty good. <laughs> so, um, what else do we want to cover on this book? I feel like we've actually hit a lot of it so far. We've hit a lot of it. There were a few uh, random thoughts I had uh, about certain elements of it. Um, one of the things I think we should definitely highlight to, to kind of bring people just into what the book is talking about uh, in chapter eight, which is the second to last chapter, uh, she focuses on, focuses on the measures of success for a movement. And she looks at that through the lens of their ability to signal three types of capacity. Uh, she talks about narrative capacity, disruptive capacity, and electoral capacity. So the last one is obviously what you would think it is. It's the ability to translate the uh, the aims of the movement into legislative change. Uh, the narrative capacity is the ability to control how the movement is covered, and the disruptive capacity is the ability of the movement to disrupt everyday society to make people pay attention to it. Um, and that was I thought that was probably one of the better chapters. Uh, the examples that you gave, Black Lives Matter, uh, Occupy Wall Street, and uh, the Tea Party um, as examples of uh, all three of those things. So Black Lives Matter controlled the narrative really well up until they didn't. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was able to disrupt everyday life in Zuccotti Park, which wasn't a large territory, but the, the camps were able to disrupt ordinary life uh, in a pretty effective manner. And the Tea Party uh, had the most uh, electoral uh, capacity because they were able to affect change at the legislative level. Um, so if you're interested in those things, it's definitely a good reason to read the book uh, because she looks at the successes and failures of both of those. The one point about the Tea Party that she brought up that I've never heard mentioned, I don't think liberals like to give the Tea Party a whole lot of credit, uh, you don't say. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't give the Tea Party a ton of credit because when you look at the movement in terms of its ability to elect its people, it has been largely impotent. As far as I can tell, there are three people that the Tea Party has elected on a national level uh, that didn't require self-sabotage by the incumbent on a massive scale, um, which is better than the left has done. So I can't really crap on them too hard. But in any case, what people realized when they looked into the... Uh, knowledge of members of the Tea Party. Uh, I, I didn't write the quote down, and I wish I had it with me right here, but they said that there was a uh, almost specifically uh, studied level of education, like a college-level education on the intricacies of the American democratic system in terms of how legislators legislatures worked in terms of how legislation itself worked, how elections worked, all of that, they were really, really good. And they knew a lot about those systems. And I find that in a lot of the less leftist uh, activism and, and organization that I've been a part of, that is definitely a weak point for us. So it's another thing that you can read about and learn about as something that we need to change, uh, something that we need to get better at if we want to win over the long term. It turns um, out old people don't just vote. They also know how it works. Um, this yeah. is this is something I also noticed. It's completely divorced from the Tea Party for all intents and purposes. Um, I've watched news in most of its forms uh, at one point or another. And there was a stint when both Keith Olbermann and Bill O'Reilly were on the air at the same time back when I was in college. And I used mm -hmm. to bat between the two of them because – they're both fun personas of their, of their parties. 
Um, and they both go on rants occasionally that are fun to listen to. And I'm a rhetorical guy. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, for all of his papa bearing and his just absolutely toxic air of superiority, talks much more frequently than Keith Olbermann does about the mechanisms of power. When Olbermann was, wask, uh, was getting into a rant, it was a thoroughly moral thing. Yeah. O'Reilly was much closer to the ground, even if the arguments he was making were still wistful and unrealistic in one way or another, or just straight up immoral. Um, there, is a, there is much more of a focus on the things that actually affect um, the world around us. There's a, there's a, they're driven by the actual mechanics. And you see that even in the way that there's, there's a lot of people who argue, I mean, Chap, Chapo's the obvious example that's coming to mind. The Democrats don't understand how to gain power anymore because they've had it for so long. They just completely abandoned, <laughs> they, they've abandoned all of the leverage and systems that are actually required to, right to gain seats. The Republicans never lost that. The Republicans have always been good at that. Well, they've um, always been good at that, and they've also spent the last 30 years building a system designed to take advantage of that. And as you mentioned, the Democrats have let their system atrophy. Yeah. The new generation is just not there. And it shows so in their base. It, right. it shows even in their base. Um, yeah, I, that's, that's mostly a complete thought on the Tea Party thing. I hadn't heard that either, but I was not surprised at all to learn it. Right, and so, yeah... Uh, the point of these examples was just that each one signals a strength in one of these three capacities and a failure in the other two. Uh, so Occupy's strength was obviously its disruptive capacity, but it failed on the narrative because they just got painted as a bunch of dirty hippies, and obviously they didn't elect anybody to power. Um, what I couldn't figure out and what she didn't get into, one of the things she talks about with Occupy is that they had a lot of vets of protest movements from the 90s, the WTO protests and whatnot, and yet that failure still occurred so thoroughly to, to translate that into an electoral signal. Um, I, I don't know why that is. It must be because they failed to network with sympathetic politicians, like in the John Lewis example that we talked about earlier. Um, but you look at people who are sympathetic to them, like Bernie Sanders in 2013 was out here on Twitter getting, you know, 10 retweets for each of his tweets. He just had no, no reach whatsoever. Um, what was his and inflection point? Bernie's? Yeah. Into Occupy? Into relevance of any kind. Oh, it was his, I mean, it was his run in it was, 2016. It was just his run? It was just the run, and he even got into that reluctantly. And this is why the the whole centrist smear campaign trying to paint all of his supporters as, as misogynists when it's very clearly a generational gap. Like, I don't think there's any debate. It's purely generational. Um but the, the thing that makes that so idiotic is that he got into the race at the last minute and only did it because he wanted to see Elizabeth Warren run to push Clinton left. And when she decided that she wasn't going to do that, he stepped in as kind of a necessary, he felt it was a necessary step because if he just let her run uh, as, as an anointed candidate, then she would never feel that pressure. And she probably wouldn't have. He was probably right. But uh, he was more than willing from everything I've read to, uh, to step down. So a woman could do it, uh, had she wanted to. Um, and then you've got that. That's the end of that thought. And then you've got, uh, the other example was, was black lives matter who had the narrative capacity. And her specific point is that she, they were able to bring 
police killings and unjust police killings to the forefront despite a decline in the raw statistics. So they really rocked that arena, but they weren't able to translate that into to real power. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the issue still exists. There is an effect. And again, it goes back to my the difference between a first and a third world protest. People now know that's a problem. That will have indirect effects for a long time. It will. And even if you can't point to exactly what it's going to do in any given instance, there are a lot of people who have been disillusioned about the state of law and order in the United States in a way that will persist long after that hashtag is forgotten. If that ever actually happens in a real way, we'll see if the internet can forget things that fast. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know what our collective memory is right now. It doesn't seem all that long, but... Yeah, but the I, the narrative, abs- with, with a, the exception of a couple of pockets, um, the narrative has absolutely been changed. It, for the oh, longest yeah. while, it was much, much more milquetoast than it is. Yeah. Um, well, it's because a lot of people are genuinely angry. <laughs> and yeah. now, now <laughs> the same number of people are genuinely angry, but more people know that those people are angry. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's more or less what it is. And that may be all it takes, and we'll find out soon enough. And We uh, will. One, one, one last thought um, before we sign off. I uh, read about the Tahrir Square protests and the, the Gezi Park protests, and one of the things that I took away from it with all the examples she gave of how small networks of individuals came together to coordinate medical supplies to start a library in each of these parks to provide so much food that they had to ask for people to not bring it was an overarching sense that the world that we have been told exists by people who are currently in power, that it is this impossibly complex machine that we would stand no chance of running without them is a lie that left to their own devices, uh, small groups of people would figure it out and it may be challenging and it may be painful. I don't doubt that. And some of these systems are large and complex, but I have a lot of faith given those examples that a change in the way that we allocate power would end up being a, a sustainable thing. And that the idea that the world is too complex for anybody, but the current technocracy is silly it's not necessary that seems like a good enough note to leave it on i think so probably yeah. Vinny, thanks for being part of the machination logs thanks Aether. i'll be back soon hopefully good morning everyone